Hey, you know how computers are designed to make running a business a lot easier? I think that counts for mailing and shipping, too. I don't know why you wouldn't use Stamps.com. You could have 24-hour access to the post office right from your computer. No waiting in line. No hassle. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easier. Just use the computer and printer you already have to get official U.S. postage for any letter, any package. Print it. Put it on envelopes. Put it on labels. Put it on plain paper. Hand it to your mail carrier. They'll take it. You're good. It's more powerful than a postage meter. You can avoid those time-consuming trips to the post office. And I personally use Stamps.com. And actually, you could too if you use the promo code BS for this special no-risk trial. It is a $110 bonus offer. and includes a digital scale, up to $55 of free postage. Um, all you have to do is go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in BS. Stamps.com. Check it out. The BS Report is a free-flowing conversation that occasionally touches on mature subjects. The BS Report. The BS Report with Ben Simmons. Welcome to the BS Report. Taping this on a Thursday morning here in Southern California. It took a break for a couple days because we had just done so many podcasts over like a week and a half long stretch that I wanted to give you, the home listener, time to catch up on everything. But now we're back. Chuck Klosterman is on the line, fresh from uh, his his successful media tour after his excellent GQ Kobe interview. Chuck, how many stations and radio stations did you go on? Like uh, like a hundred thousand? I think five. I five. Think I did okay. Five. That right. were like a significant one. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. Coward was all excited. You came on. Yeah, it was. Uh, I'd never been on. Uh, I think I did on Libertad show once. I think after the Royce White situation, but that's yeah. the first time. I'd been, I I had to say I don't think I have done a story that had this much attention for a long time. Probably since I did a profile on Billy Joel in like 2002. It was pretty weird. Really? Yeah. Why? So why do you? What do you think about that interview? Got people uh, that excited? Um, I suppose it's just a combination of the the fame of the person involved and the straightforward nature in which he discussed things that he doesn't seem to talk about, you know, or that most people don't talk about athletes or otherwise. Right. I, uh, we, we, we had him on too for the TV show, which was, um, we tried to make it a little more big picture than, and, uh, I I mean, the way you attacked the, the magazine interview I thought was really interesting. I don't think we could have asked some of those questions on TV. I think as a combo, they kind of worked, but the big, the big overreaching part of this whole thing is how fascinating it is that Kobe is trying to reinvent. And uh, I guess kind of, I don't, I didn't even know what the right word is, but whatever he's want, trying to do with his legacy, he's doing a really good job at it. Don't you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, what, what was so interesting about the story that I did, I don't know if you had the same experience uh, maybe with with, uh, with the Grandline episode, but I found that people who did not like Kobe and have issues with Kobe read the piece and seemed to think it validated how they viewed him, and people who liked him seemed to like him more and thought it was real humanizing. It was strange. Somehow by being honest, he's kind of allowing everyone to sort of occupy whatever idea they want to have about him. It's, it's actually the opposite of what should logically be happening. Like, I don't <laughs> think that he's um, really changing his legacy as much as just deepening it 
and sort of making it seem uh, more meaningful and kind of profound somehow. And it does seem like he's adding a layer of context to everything that happened that I'm not sure existed as it happened. The more I think about it, like, you know, he's, he really talks about the, the first five, six, seven, eight years with the Lakers as if there was some sort of hidden master plan beyond everything that was going on. You know, like he was looking at it, he was able to step out of the situation and think, here are all these variables. Here's how I need to control the situation. Shaq's going to be the good cop. I'm going to be the bad cop. And and it all sounds great. But in, even when he was saying it on our TV show, I was like, oh, that makes sense. And then I'm thinking about it after. And he was like, what, 22, 23 years old? Do you really think he was thinking about all that stuff at the time? Um, No. But you know how it is when you look back on your life. The things that seemed insane at the time somehow seem all knit together and reasonable in retrospect. Uh, one thing that's very interesting about all of this, and I just don't mean my piece or your show, any of the pieces he's been doing and, and, and the things that he's been kind of doing in public, is I do notice that there's some reaction from people who are like, this is great, Kobe doesn't care anymore, he just says what he thinks. He, he, he doesn't care uh, how it looks. I actually think it is the complete reversal of that. I think he cares very much. I think that he is more interested in his legacy and his perception than most athletes who've ever gotten to that point. And he cares enough to actually kind of take this gamble of becoming vulnerable in public while he's still active. I mean, yep. these are things, the things he said in, when I talked to him, and I mean, those are the kind of things that would have been very surprising to read in Jerry West's autobiography, written years after he retired. You know, I just I don't see many corollaries of this because you're not supposed to be self-aware of this kind of personality type. Like you're not supposed to be this like this driven, friendless, workaholic, obsessed with success and also be, well, this is a social weakness and this is a product of my upbringing. And it's sort of a, uh, a problem in my life that allows me to do this one thing particularly well. Those are things that are supposed to happen retroactively. It's just it's so uh, like just throws you off balance to have someone do it in the present tense. We should mention the documentary is on Showtime this Saturday night. I think it premieres. I yeah. I was prepared to 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 just be underwhelmed. I guess would be the word by the and documentary. Yeah, I just assumed the timing of when he started working on it. It always felt to me like Steve Nash was doing the finish line for Grantland, and that got Kobe maybe excited to start doing his own version of the finish line, basically. Have you but seen the documentary? I haven't seen it. The The Kobe one? Yeah. Oh, I thought you saw it. Oh, no. Oh, no, okay. when, I was, when I talked to him, he was still working on it. That's okay. why he was like, I met him at like 8.30 or 8.40, and he had to leave by 10 to work on it. Um, so yeah, I, saw I don't know it. what... Okay, go ahead. And... It's it's better than I thought it was going to be. It's really interesting. The most fascinating thing to me is something you wouldn't know if you just watched the documentary. First of all, he's the only interview in it, right? There's nobody else in it. The interesting part of this is, I don't know, maybe October, something like that, the the director, Gotham, had, had been working on pretty a pretty traditional documentary about Kobe for seven, eight, nine months. And this is all, I, you know, I'm not I'm not breaking news here. They've talked about this already. So he presents the interview to Kobe, and I think they did. They interviewed like 40 different people, 
they had like a three-hour Phil Jackson interview, like et cetera, et cetera. Kobe sees the documentary and is like, nah, I'm not feeling it. Ends up, they go back in, they film a whole bunch of new interviews with Kobe because the director's like, well, if you're not feeling it, you got to give me more in your interviews. And they end up redoing this documentary and he's the only interview in it. So they have these 40 interviews that nobody's ever going to see. And also, what, was he not? Was he, isn't he interviewed by Deepak Chopra for this? It was a, a Deepak's son, Gotham. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. So, so when you think about it, and I, I, I mentioned this in the TV show, and I, I should have gone further with it, but we were just we, at that point we were pressed for time. But it's kind of funny that Kobe, who's always got this uh, reputation as being. Um, I don't know, like kind of a control freak. Let me do everything by myself. You know, he played basketball that way. Teammates were just kind of these pawns in his larger game. Then he does this documentary and he's the only person in it. When I mentioned it, he started laughing. He was like, yeah, I'm a control freak. But I thought it was cool that he did a documentary that actually reflected how he played basketball, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's it's part of the reason I'm sure these interviews have been so interesting. He spent all this time just thinking about his own life. Yeah, you know, it's like he's. I, I assume a lot of the things, like like he said in that GQ piece, uh, they weren't totally extemporaneous. Like the the question maybe hadn't been directly asked to him, but he had thought of these things. I mean, it was a little bit. The only corollary I can even draw is I had done a story about Metallica when some kind of monster was going to come out. The documentary yeah. about them going to therapy, and because they had spent you know two years or whatever talking to a therapist. They were ready to answer questions in a way that almost as if uh, they were using the interview as a kind of public therapy. That's a mm. little bit what it seemed like. Yeah. It, the documentary hammered home some things that I knew but hadn't really thought about. Um, really, his upbringing had such a big impact on the kind of career he ended up having. So he's in Italy bouncing around Europe basically and just starts playing basketball because it's like the one one thing he's good at. Doesn't really have a lot of friends. He doesn't really totally fit in as this son of a black American basketball player living in a foreign country. And basketball just becomes the place that he goes. Then he comes back to Philly, same thing. He's doesn't really fit in there either. He's this kid who lived in Italy, this whole thing. Doesn't really get the whole culture of the lingo, all that stuff. So he's falling into that but he's really good at basketball. And and it just like, I think that, and he tries to make that point throughout the documentary. He made it in the TV show we did with him. Like he called it his refuge. And anytime something bad was happening in his life, which, you know, you can insinuate to think like the, the almost trial he had all the, all yeah. the different stuff, the battles with Shaq, he would always go back to the basketball court. Well, it's so, interesting you bring that up because, you know, his situation is, is specifically weird. Like, Okay, if you or I were forced to grow up in Italy, we would have had the same circumstance in a lot of ways. We wouldn't have spoke the language. We would have you know, been moving around constantly getting involved with these friend groups that had already existed. And probably yep. our natural inclination would have been to sort of attempt to please them or do whatever they want. If they want to make fun of us, sure, it's a way to be friends. You know, you're a young adolescent. You're trying to figure this out. But because he had this transcendent skill, that he was aware of, he could actually take that discomfort and basically be like, you know what, 
I'm going to do this and be great, and I don't care if I'm uncomfortable, which is probably why he never learned how to make friends, or at least that's what he described. You know, it's, it, it's, I thought it was very interesting in that piece where he specifically said to me, like, you know, the kind of friendships you see in movies, like, that's impossible for me. Like, he's actually using cinematic depictions of relationships to try to understand his own life. Yeah. Like that, you know, not to over, I don't want to overemphasize, like take this one sentence and make it seem like it's really profound. But I did think that was interesting that, that his greatness at basketball probably allowed him to be a socially uh, problematic person, you know? Yeah. And he, he knows he's interesting and, and has figured out how to cultivate the fact that he's interesting. Um, one, one of the things that I've always been fascinated by with him is that he's, so atypical from other NBA players who are always surrounded by either their buddies growing up or the buddies they have now. So it, there's always some sort of an an entourage that comes with them. And in his case, his entourage has been his family basically for the last 12 years. And he, he's just, he, he doesn't have, you, you never see like, oh, there's Kobe's best friend from Lower Marion High School or Oh yeah, Kobe, the guy who played in the Lakers with him for two years. That guy is now like his buddy, and he's helping him run his production company. Mm-hmm. There's none of that with that guy. He just doesn't have friends like that. Even Jordan, who I think was wired a little bit similar similarly to him, in that his teammates weren't his friends; they were just people who worked for Jordan, basically. Which I think is how Kobe is wired. But Jordan had a couple friends from North Carolina, like. People like Buzz Peterson, like somebody like Rod Higgins, uh, Jordan made the general manager of Charlotte. So even he had some people. Oh, Kobe yeah, just I've, has nobody. I've, I've mentioned this in kind of this media onslaught a bunch of times, but I kind of say it again. Like, you know, obviously to get compared to Jordan a lot, Kobe and Jordan, it makes sense because they have this, this real kind of diabolical desire to succeed. But to me, the difference is that with Jordan, it was almost like I'm like this and I'm happy I'm like this. And I don't want to think about it. That's just how I am, you know. Whereas Kobe can't do that, or doesn't want to do that. And I really think to his credit, it's like he—he he sort of has his his true nature is to be that way. But yeah. for whatever reason, maybe just because he came from a, a you know the next generation sort of a people where the idea of thinking about your life is more important now. I mean, there's a greater emphasis in our culture as a whole of considering your old life. and Are you happy? And what, what's a good life? You know, uh, he's a little more willing or maybe unable to stop himself from sort of thinking about this and sort of going, boy, it's weird that I'm like this. The one question we, we got in the, in the fourth block of the TV show, I was going to steer toward um, when he took that big Lakers contract and how hard it made it for the Lakers to get better because he was taking all that money. But then he really steadfastly feels like he did the right thing and that the owners, the, the franchise values of the teams have gone way, way up. They locked out the players and cost the players money. It was all for this greater good that really benefited the owners and not the players. The owners and, and Adam Silver would say, well, ultimately it does benefit the players because the salary cap goes up. That money goes to the players. They get 50% of it, et cetera, et cetera. Kobe's Kobe's philosophy is basically why should I take 10 to 12 million dollars less than I'm worth to help my really really wealthy owner who owns a team that's worth 3 billion dollars to help him get a better team that's going to bring him in more money. That's all fine, I get it. But then on the other hand, 
he always talks about how important titles are to him and the five titles and titles, titles, titles. And it's this dichotomy that's just never made sense. And I really wanted to ask him about it, and we never got there. But what? I mean, I don't know. How do you even think he would explain that? Well, I mean, that is it's an it's an impossible sort of contradiction to reconcile. I mean, on the one hand, the history of sports salaries tells us that it helps the players, it helps labor to get as much as you can whenever you can. I mean, I remember watching like a like the documentary on I think it was on the NFL Network about Joe Namath yep. and his huge contract, and like every other player was like, "We love that." There was no jealousy at all. That was good for everybody. So, in a sense, it is his obligation in a way to get as much as he can to set that precedent. Um, does it contradict this idea that his only real goal is winning titles? Well, yeah, it does, but. I mean, it's. Uh, I. I mean, I don't know. It's. Is that an unreasonable expectation to have? That that we just assume people should give away money in order to prove that they actually are as competitive and want to win as much as we prefer to believe that they do. I don't think it's. I don't think it has anything to do with us. I think it has. I think it's entirely the player. So. Dirk took a lot less money to work for the Mavericks, right? I think he did three years, $25 million. That allowed them to go get Chandler Parsons. Well, Dallas is going to be an eight seed, and they have no chance of winning the title. So that didn't work out. Maybe maybe he would do that over again. Then you go to the flip side. Brady takes half what he's worth to play for the Patriots. You know, you could really tangibly figure out what it is. It probably could have made another $10 million, I'd say, per year. That $10 million goes directly to Darrell Rivas, the Patriots do not win the Super Bowl without Darrell Rivas. So you could there's you could point to the cause and effect of Brady and Darrell Rivas, to him taking less money was the Super Bowl. Same thing for Tim Duncan. If he doesn't take a lot less, they can't sign Boris Diaw. They can't give Manu the seven million dollar extension, so on and so on. So I don't know. It, it, if I was a player, I mean, what would you do? I feel well, like I would take the money. Here's the thing, also that I I don't know how this is policed. Or if it is policed, or if this, you know, uh, Nowitzki is a good example. What is to stop Mark Cuban from saying, okay, you're going to get a smaller contract because it's going to be good for us to sign other guys for cap space and all that. But let me tell you, when you retire and you want to get involved with, say, ownership or basketball or any other business, any one of my many Shark Tank businesses that, have, that, I, that I own, you'll be able to do that. You will make this up on the back end. I mean, can, how do they stop people from doing that? Especially somebody who's so ingrained in the franchise that it wouldn't seem weird at all if, 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 if upon his retirement, Dirk is involved with the Mavericks in perpetuity. Like I it, made it, that joke in in the trade value part two that went up yesterday that Dirk was going to be the new president of Magnolia Entertainment for fifteen million dollars a year. There's no way to stop it. And actually, yeah, so, the Lakers did that with Magic Johnson way back when. They gave him a piece of the team. And I so. wonder if that happens more than we realize. I mean, certainly with someone like Tom Brady and the relationship he has with the Crafts, that seems very possible to me. Well, I, I think there's a lot more going on with everything than maybe we realize. Like, for instance. I'm sure of it. Um, when, Kobe had, when Kobe had to fly back and forth to Colorado for the trial, 
right? Or for the pre-trial, whatever was going on. Remember he had to fly back yeah. and forth a bunch of times? Yeah. It was, yeah. The Lakers paid for that plane. Isn't that kind of a salary cap? I'm, I mean, I'm I'm 99% sure they paid for the plane. But wouldn't that be a salary cap violation in spirit that, you know, they, they're, they're spending extra money to keep their guy happy? Seems I, kind yes, of Yes, I mean, if you assign the cost of the flight to, uh, to like, his net value or whatever, but that's, you know... That that's I hate to always use this term, but like that's kind of a slippery slope. I mean, you have to factor totally. in what you pay these guys for food. If you give them Kobe steaks instead of hot dogs or whatever, do you got to factor that into what you're paying them? I I don't know tickets like courtside stuff like that. Like I'm sure when LeBron comes back to Cleveland and they make a deal, and I'm sure part of that deal is like you get to use the private plane this many times, you get this many tickets. So I I think they do cut corners in a roundabout way, but I, you know, back to the Kobe decision though, he's figured out how to justify everything that's happened to him. And in this case, he's, he's clearly playing the whole, those guys make so much money off us. Why should I take less? But you know, if he was making eight, 9 million bucks next year, they'd have a chance to go really retool their team immediately. And he'd have, be able to have one last run with them. And, they really can't until the 16-17 season after this contract is up. So I don't know. I, I'm always – whenever somebody spends this much time trying to reestablish whatever they want their legacy to be, I'm always, I'm always going to be a little dubious. But at the same time, I really liked I, – I really like everything he said, and I liked watching the documentary, and it was, I thought the whole, the whole thing was really fascinating, you know? But, you know, I, I, just, I don't know if he's really reinventing this, though, because – Okay, a lot of people in the you know like in the piece I did have noted the portion where he talks about having a hard time having friends. That became a real popular thing to be for like blogs to cite. Yeah. Like that. Well, I felt that was a pretty established thing going into this. I did not have any fear about asking that question. I mean, to me, that was the third or fourth most interesting part of it. Um, so yes, he's talking about it, and it's weird to have someone say that they don't have normal friendships, but that wasn't. A surprise. I mean, right. the things that he's like it's it's the the very small details that are surprising. Like when he talks about the difference between his relationship with Shaq and his relationship with Phil Jackson, there were things in there that I was like, "Well, I didn't anticipate that." But I don't know in a macro sense if it was that surprising. I mean, I, yeah. I was surprised when he talked about seeing a priest during the the, the whole rape allegation stuff. Um, but it's not. Uh, you know that's not 180 degrees different than than what we would expect any person in that position to do if charged with a crime that serious. Right. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I think he spent about three years here, subtly reinventing things, um, and or being more transparent about things, or being just more open about things. It started. I noticed it. In uh, the his last season before he got hurt seemed to be when he was really like he started to use Twitter and Facebook. I actually thought he was using that stuff really smartly and was kind of of all the NBA players I thought doing the best job with it. I think we've even talked about this before on the pod. It was like this this guy who was just this all he wants to do is win. He has no friends. We had this whole perception of him. 
And then he used social media to kind of change what that perception was. And it was like, oh, this is actually like sarcastic, you know, sticks to his guns, Kobe. Like this is like this new character he was creating. And now it's kind of snowballed. And now we're here with a whole documentary. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because it's very hard not to look at any celebrity's actions without kind of cynically suspecting that there is an ulterior motive. Right. That anytime anyone does anything, that it's not just a, a, a like a like a reaction. You know, I mean, it's um, you know, when Kobe says things like, you know, well, I I kind of realized after Colorado that you know. People are going to love me or people are going to hate me, and they've made up their decision, so it doesn't really matter how I act, so I might as well just be myself. That actually seems like a reasonable thing for someone to say, but because he's a celebrity, we're like, well, okay, what's the secondary reason? No. You know, I, I, although for him, it's not. it doesn't seem to me – like, well, what do you assume his motive for this reinvention is? Because if you're right – if this is a conscious thing, if he's like, I'm going to reinvent myself in this way, the only motive I could see would be a desire to just be more liked by the yes. public at large, That's which is a very is. different thing. I, I, I guess I, it, it, if someone does something um, uh, really odd and their desire is to you know, get a higher profile or increase their brand or make money or something, that, I really hate that. But if someone's doing it because in their mind they're like, I want to be liked, I don't know. I have empathy for that. Well, you know, the one thing that his career was missing, I was, and I thought about this after we asked him, uh, he only won one MVP award. Why didn't he win more? And he was like, because the media votes on it. But then he said something after that made me think he was still mad about this. But if you go by year by year, Really, he only could have won the MVP in 2006 and 2008. Those were the only two years, and he mm -hmm. should have won in 2006. Yeah. It was a farce that he didn't win. He was unbelievable that season. But he never – you know how with the players, like when we were growing up, Larry Bird had that run in the mid-'80s, and he was on the cover of SI a couple times, and they're basically just like the living legend, like those type of articles. And it was like this whole media cycle just about how unbelievable and great Larry Bird was, right? And then you saw it happen again with LeBron in 2008 and 2009 is when he really kind of blossomed into undisputably the best player in the league. It's this whole round of media cycles, this guy's amazing, this guy's great. Then it repeated itself in 2012 in Miami when that team took off again. Kobe never really had that cycle. There was never a point in his career other than 06 when we were like, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. This guy's so great. But even when that was happening, it was like we we were talking about him kind of like, wow, this guy's amazing, but like in kind of a creepy way. Like he doesn't need teammates. He's figured out to teammates are props for whatever larger goal he has in a basketball game. So I think maybe he just wanted that that whole approval that he never got. Does that make sense or no? Yeah, well, you know, he is a tricky case because – when he sort of ascends to the top tier, he's with Shaq. So there was, of course, some speculation that, well, we can't really gauge him because, you know, it's two guys and they're equally important. And, and maybe he would, you know, maybe he would seem like a different player if Shaq wasn't there. And then he got accused of rape. So then it came, it kind of became weird to talk to him in any way. Right. By the time he comes back and wins again, like the second time when Jackson came back, well, 
he was no longer the best player in the league. He was a top five player. I mean, it just happens to dudes sometimes that they're just consistently among the three best players in the league, but uh, they're rarely the best, you know? Right. He was, got, he was two years, I guess. A couple of Laker fans emailed me because we put all my trade Viacoms up, and Kobe's rankings year by year aren't quite as high as you would think they would be. You know, he was he's always between like maybe three and nine, something like that. And you just forget, like, he had those three great Shaq years, and especially like 01. It just, they, you know, those two and Duncan were the best three players in the league. And that's one of the few times in the history of the league somebody's had two of the top three in the same team. Then 03 happens, him and Shaq are just feuding the whole time. The trial, all that stuff happens the next year. They have that superstar season with Malone and Peyton. That goes to dust. All of a sudden, Shaq's gone. He's basically irrelevant from a playoff standpoint for three solid years during his peak, you know? And then mm-hmm. 08, belatedly, when they got Pau Gasol, like a three, four-month run, Celtics wax him in the finals. They win back-to-back the next two years, but that's when LeBron had kind of taken over as kind of the guy, mm-hmm. you know? Um it's just he never – I don't think we've seen a, a career kind of up and down arc with a top 15 player like that. Maybe Hakeem was kind of in the ballpark of it because Hakeem had kind of – during his peak, he never really had the right teammates. They were talking about trading him, stuff like that. But then even with Hakeem, he still had a three-year run that was up there with the best three-year runs by a center ever. So I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's certainly – the strangest NBA career I think we've had other than Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Kobe's career. Yeah, and I think I think LeBron's career in retrospect will seem extremely strange, but uh, so? I would agree with you. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it, retroactively it will seem weird. The, the thing that with the decision and then the experience in Miami and then going back to Cleveland since we don't know what's going to happen there. Right. Um, I, you know, I, it, also it's, it's so rare that an athlete actually fulfills the expectations that uh, that LeBron had, and yet that did not become the defining story of his career. I mean, like, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in high school. Basically, this is the chosen one. This is going to be the greatest player of his generation. And that yeah. actually happened. In almost every other case, that is the beginning of the really sad, you know, you know, uh, you know Todd Marinovich story or whatever. Right. I don't think I, I. I wonder if we'll ever get an adequate answer for what happened to LeBron and the Cavaliers in the spring of 2010, and and just why why those last few Celtic games in the playoff series unfolded the way they did, and why he was so anxious to get out of there, and it, it, and then beyond that, like I think we're gonna look back 20 years and think that it was just insane that Dwayne Wade convinced him to come to Miami. I don't know if we spent enough time talking about that. I don't think we'll ever get an adequate answer to that question, though, because, you know, in the past, there were often shadow histories with everything. Like, yeah. there was a story we all knew, and then later we find out that this this was like the what was really going on underneath the surface. But now the shadow history kind of happens alongside the mainstream history. Like, like there's not – everything is kind of unturned as it happens. So uh, it's it's – if the answer doesn't come within the first 90 days of the event, it's like, well, maybe the answer is just not there. You know, 
I'm pretty confident. I've talked to enough people. Uh, this will probably end up on a blog post, but whatever. Uh, I've talked to enough people, and I even wrote about this. If you go back into my archives, I wrote about this whole theory even before he went to Miami. But there was there was a thing circulating around in 2009 and then 2010 that Bosch, um, LeBron, and Wade, and Carmelo, they, there were two versions of the story, one had Carmelo and one didn't, that they had all made some pact when they were at the Olympics together to play together in 2010. Yeah, I thought there was and, also a story about them all being at the same wedding and this happening too. Or am I conflating that with something else? Well, there's been different versions of the story. So a cu- there's a couple couple conspiracy things. This would be a good episode of Serial. If there was ever a sports serial, the whole LeBron 2010 would be a good one. Because in 2007, LeBron, Wade, and Bosch, who all had agent ties within agents that knew each other. I think World Wide West was involved. This guy, Henry Thomas, uh, Leon Rose, all these different things. They all put in three-year outs in their deals. And the only one that didn't put the three-year out in his deal was Carmelo. And the reason he didn't do that, people think, was because his agent didn't want the three-year out because his agent was afraid of losing him. And if and if that three-year out wasn't in there, he would get paid for the, a commission for the fourth year. So then all these guys had three-year outs in 2010, but Carmelo had to wait an extra year because his agent hadn't put the three-year out in. So – that led to the whole Carmelo New York Denver stuff. But anyway, um, people really feel – I've just heard it from too many people. People feel really strongly that those three guys all made some sort of weird pack to play together. And then you think about Mickey Harrison, the Miami owner. His son was like a ball boy in that Olympic team. So you could get a really good serial podcast with, with all the different variables – and how that played out. And I, I hope we get the whole story someday. I mean, it'll probably happen after LeBron retires, but, but like, I'm not it, it's one of the great obvious, ones. I'm obviously not going to ask you when you say, like, I've talked to too many people who these people are, but are they like other journalists who know off the record stuff? Are they basically guys in management? I mean, great, you, this great will, question. Every, every so often you'll refer to, like, I've just talked to too many people about this. And I always wonder, yeah. in general, who those people are. They're all types of people. I would say, I would say they're not in in categories. You can't gather. I would say they're all types of people. Who might... Man on the street. Well, no people who Restaurant people who would. <laughs> I only trust people who who would would really have direct knowledge of stuff. So these people tend to be. I'm I'm not going to say that I'm tipping my hat. We live in an okay. era now where people write whole articles trying to figure out who sources are. I know, I know. Yeah. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I think it's neutral. Yeah. Because I don't. I uh, if if it's speculation on who the source is, it doesn't really validate the original story unless the source comes out and says that was me. I mean, you know, it's any time. Like I very very rarely ever use like anonymous or unnamed people in anything I write. But every time I do, I notice that people speculate about it, and they've never, ever been right. Not one time. Yeah, I try. I battle back and forth. I I usually don't do that either. I do like to pass along, like if there's like a scuttlebutt going on, and I think it's relevant, and it has, uh, you know, 
if it's something that within like the NBA that people are really talking about and is a storyline that's kind of happening in the shadows um, and it's not something that's, you know, libelous or defamatory in any way or whatever, then I, I think that's interesting. You know, like right now, um, the the NBA is really trying to figure out what to do with that salary cap because they have so much money coming in in 2016, um, starting with that season with the media rights deal, that it's going to lead to this crazy salary cap reverse apocalypse where all of a sudden your every team's salary cap is going to increase by 25%. And this is a real problem from a competitive standpoint. Nobody really understands how it's going to play out or what it's going to do, and everybody's talking about it. But nobody's written the right story about it yet. But I know everybody's talking about it, so like I feel comfortable talk, you know, mentioning that here, right? <laughs> but when you get into a situation like the Des Bryant tape, that's when I start to get uncomfortable. You know? Yeah, you know, uh, when people are like, "Hey, there's this tape, supposedly, maybe," and it's like, "What?" It's uh. I guess I, every every minute that tape doesn't surface, the the more skeptical I become that it exists. Now I'll probably I'll probably get off the phone with you and it'll show up somewhere. But uh, it doesn't. It just seems like things aren't hidden like that. Like you just can't you can't keep things hidden like that anymore. So uh, if I hear a rumor about something, it needs to be validated pretty quick for me to really believe it. Right. Yeah, the, I mean, this even this conversation makes me nervous. <laughs> People just take, take, it's just so easy to for somebody to take something and run with it. But uh, what else did we want to talk about today? There, I feel there like was we something covered I wanted. To, there's something I wanted to get your opinion about. Um, Let's do I'm it. Thinking about about uh, Rajon Rondo. Yeah. The situation going on right now in Dallas. Okay. It's going to take me a little setup to get this, but I'll, I'll get, so give me a minute or two to explain this, and then I kind of want your take. Okay. Um, for people who don't know about this, it's like uh, Rondo got suspended a game because he got into a, like a basically a mid-game argument with Rick Carlisle because Carlisle was calling the play, and Rondo ignored him, and then Carlisle called a timeout, and they got into a screaming match, and then they got into another argument uh, at, in the locker room, and he missed a game now, and uh, kind of for, for you know, punitive reasons, and there was a real kind of weird press conference that Carlisle was involved with where a reporter asked him a very aggressive question. But, you know, like, I think you know this. Like, my views on sports tend to skew pretty conservative, at least compared to my other views in life. Like, I, I, I don't know why that is. I guess I use a different kind of rule for sports and other things, but in situations with coaches and players, I guess I tend to gravitate toward the coach. I'm just, I'm just that kind of person when in, 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 in sports. But in this case, um, I'm kind of siding with Rondo and, and I want to explain why. And I want to see if you agree. I was, I was thinking about pro football in the seventies and how over that decade, basically the idea of the quarterback calling the play, disappeared and it became something that was called by the offensive coordinator or the coach from the sideline or the booth. And by the end of the seventies, I think the only two teams with a quarterback still called the play was the Steelers and the Raiders. There might have been right. one other. Um, and I think in a way that's one of the underrated reasons sort of uh, offense increased so much during the eighties. The biggest reason was the rule changes. But I think part of it was that the game kind of moved away from people kind of going with their gut, you know, on the field 
to like, well, we can think about this. We can game plan for this, you know. But now it has all moved back. Now all the best quarterbacks essentially control the game from the line of scrimmage. And I think this is another reason why offense has spiked again. Because when you're in the game, you have a better understanding of what's happening than anyone watching it. Um, you know, you, you can make adjustments quicker. You can understand certain matchups. I think like when Peyton Manning or Brady or Drew Brees or whatever, are can kind of controlling the game at the line. That's a huge advantage. So I was thinking about Rondo trying to call his own plays or ignoring uh, Carlisle. And I thought like, well, you know, we know Rondo's smart. Everybody says that. And we know he's not selfish because he probably should shoot more. I mean, this isn't like J.R. Smith calling the plays or like Reggie Jackson or something. It's like I don't, I don't believe that Rondo would be calling plays to somehow reward himself. So do you think that maybe his argument is actually way better than Carlisle and that it would be to the Mavericks' advantage if Rondo did get to control what plays were called and what happened and that this is a case where maybe it's time – for the organization to realize they have an institutional advantage letting him sort of dictate the flow as opposed to the coach. I think there's two separate conversations going on here. One is that Rondo and Carlisle and the Mavs, it's all a bad fit, which I've I've been watching. I have to admit the feed on the Rondo trade. I thought it was going to be awesome for Dallas, but he's this guy that needs the ball in his hands. And Carlisle's offense is the opposite of that. Carlisle wants the ball like whipping around. He wants he wants it just nobody to have it for that long, and it's flying around. And the only time it's going to stop is if you got Dirk on the high post. They run the little handoff play with the point guard. The point guard clears out. And now Dirk's got a smaller guy on him on the low post, like the, on the high post. That's what they want. So Rondo screws that up. It's never been a good fit. He doesn't want to get fouled anymore. He got hit in the face. So he was already like he didn't want to get fouled because he didn't, he didn't want to shoot free throws. But now he really doesn't want to get fouled because he has his healing orbital bone and healing cheekbone and all this stuff. And he can't shoot threes. So it's basically a, a it's the square peg in the round hole syndrome. But Rondo is also this guy who's always been in control of, of the team and in control of the offense and deciding who gets the ball and where. But that's kind of what Carlisle does. So to me, it's like whatever happened to them in that game was going to happen. You know what I mean? Um, But I think your other point is probably where basketball is headed. Like, I don't feel like LeBron – do you think LeBron is like, oh, I wonder what David Blatt thinks we should do on this play? Like, I watch Cleveland now, and LeBron's basically running that offense. I don't think he cares what David Blatt thinks. I I mean, I don't know. I mean, I assume he probably doesn't care that much, but – I don't know that. I do know this, though, that it's not as if LeBron um, is not putting enough time in to make those decisions and that Rondo is not putting enough time in to make these decisions. I don't know if – like uh, I, I'm not saying that that, that uh, Rondo is a better technician than Carlisle, but the drop-off isn't as great as it would have been 20 years ago, I think. And, you know, you talk about Rondo kind of being the, like, the square peg in the round hole. That's probably true. But this square peg is your second best player, so you might have to change that hole. You know, like I, I if they want to succeed, they're not going to succeed by not playing Rondo. I mean, they're going to succeed by getting the most out of him, and you can get the most out of Dirk in a lot of different ways. So, I, I mean, I, I just it, it seems to me that the conflict they're having, like I don't, I understand that you can't yell at your coach in front of 
a full house of guys without there being some penalty. But I'm saying the larger point is that the Mavericks would probably be better served to give him more leverage and more freedom than enforcing uh, the way they've done things before, which I normally would not have said about these situations. But I think things are different now. God, it, 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 it's not as though uh, uh, he's not qualified to make the decisions that are necessary. I'm going the other way. I actually think they're better off if he's not playing for them in crunch time. Hmm. I think uh, I think he's just a bad fit. I think it was worth the trade or the gamble. Um, I I'm pretty confident in my, in my information, which I said at the time that Carlisle was against the trade, and they made it anyway. And that was the trade was done that weekend. It took like four more days to make because I don't think Carlisle wanted it. Um, if you're looking at it from just did it hurt Dallas's chances to win the title? The answer is yes, because the assets they gave up were all assets they could have used for other players, right? So they gave up Brandon Red, Jay Crowder, first round pick. Like those are all things they could have turned into people that actually could have helped them probably more than Rondo was helping. Okay. But initially you 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 and I both agreed this is gonna be a good move for Dallas. They've oh, absolutely. Their- I thought because, it was gonna and, be and because be he's great. talented, right? The talent has increased. So to me, to say that like they're better off with Rondo off the floor in crunch time, that suggests to me that they need to adjust how they play in crunch time. Because if you're not going to have the five best players on the court, um, I think that's a system failure. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you want no, you I'm with cr- you. Yeah. This is a great point because this is something that's that's bothered me about sports in other situations like this where the coach's quote-unquote system trumped whoever the talent was. I think this is why I think Belichick is the greatest coach of this generation because he just kind of figures out what to do with the people he has. There's no Belichick system. Like if I if I said to you, what's Bill Belichick's system, I don't think you'd be able to answer the question, right? Because it mm-hmm. changes year after year after year. Whereas – you look at some other people, like say Mike D'Antoni is a, a really good example. He's got this system. And it worked when he had Steve Nash, Sean Marion, and Amara Stoudemire and a bunch of shooters. But if you don't have those guys, maybe you got to adjust the system. I think it's the same case now at the Triangle. The Knicks had the makings of, of you know, like they had Tyson Chandler and J.R. Smith and Carmelo and, um, you know, a bunch of shooters. They had an off year last year. It was a fixable situation. They bring in Derek Fisher in the triangle and every and they trade Tyson Chandler. Jarrett terrible in that system. They end up giving him away from nothing and he's an asset now in the Cavs. Same thing for Shumpert. But it's like what did that team really need the triangle with the personnel they had? Yeah, I mean to me system, I like I like I like system coaches, but that's a college phenomenon. I mean like Paul Johnson can coach Georgia Tech and he can run the option, and he can recruit guys to run the option. And he can get the specific people he needs to do that, and he can basically make the decision of, like, we're going to do this, and if you want to do this, come here. At the pro level, it seems like a huge mistake when you can't really control who's on your roster to start with a system and just keep jamming people into it. Um, yeah, I, I think – Go ahead. Well, if Rondo was 2012 Rondo, 
then I would say Carlisle was making a mistake, not just turning the team over to him and reinventing what they have on the fly and trying to get the most out of just the talent they have right now. I think the the real problem though is that Rondo's not 2012 Rondo, and um, like so many other Celtic fans who are watching him, I thought he was on cruise control. I thought he kind of checked out. I thought him going to a contender was going to rejuvenate his his superstardom. And you know, the Celtics had kind of when they traded him, the Celtics felt like he wasn't the same physically. That was one of the reasons they wanted to trade him. They just thought he wasn't the same after his knee, and. It's kind of been confirmed on what on what we've seen from Dallas. Like I, I just think he's at a different phase of his career. It's going to be really interesting to see if he gets superstar money. I think everybody's going to get superstar money this summer. I mean, it's like Milwaukee traded Brandon Knight because they knew he's probably going to get a ninety million dollar offer from somebody this summer. So I think the salaries are so far out of whack. The Celtics didn't want to pay Rondo, you know. So hey, the system thing's really, really, really fascinating to me though. Like let's say Chip Kelly, is he is that just his system? It doesn't matter who the players are, he's always just gonna find people to fit into what, what he wants to do offensively. Or would he ever vary from that if he had players that maybe it made more sense to be a team that pounds the ball or whatever? I don't know. I don't think he would ever I mean he is like a system guy and he's he's the real kind of test of this idea and, and sort of I mean I'd like to see him actually succeed and kind of contradict my point that this is a co- kind of a collegiate idea um when Wolves got hurt and Sanchez uh, came in for a little bit a couple of games I was like this system really is bulletproof like yeah. you can put any guy in here and he's great and if that's the case this is going to be successful for a long time but then by the end of the year it was very clear that the, there was a substantial drop off with Sanchez in there, and uh, that uh, you know you you need to have that that it's it's not just something that it's not like you can just like you know make a fantasy team and pop guys in and see how it works. And speak, you know this is kind of related. Uh, oh wait, hold on. Sure? I have one more point on this. How related is your point? Not very. Okay, save your point because I have a follow up on this. So Sam Hinky and the Sixers, I think this is a really good example of a system, right? And his system is, if I don't want to be mediocre, you, the only way to get good is to be terrible. The only way to get good is to get really lucky with a top three pick and get us and draft a superstar because that's the that's been the most common recipe for success, or to get so many assets that I can make a trade like the James Harden trade. And, like, when he got that Sixers job, he gave a PowerPoint presentation, according to Pablo Torre's story, gave a PowerPoint presentation of the Harden trade and all the variables that led up to them having enough assets to make the trade. And it was basically like, you just want to accumulate assets. And the assets can be used either to trade for a superstar or to have more chances to draft a superstar. So this is his theory, the way he's looked at it. So... Michael Carter-Williams, he trades. Michael Carter-Williams, people would think would be an asset, the kind of guy you'd want on a young team. He makes the decision, that guy can't be one of the two best players on a championship team. I have a chance to turn him into this Lakers pick. Now, the Lakers pick, top five protected. They're the fourth worst team right now. The Celtics were the fourth worst team last year and ended up getting the sixth pick. So there's a chance the Lakers, that pick, the Lakers could just keep it this year. It's top three protected next year. They are going to spend money on free agents. That might be a terrible pick. He took the chance that that will be um, 
that th- that will be the sixth pick in the draft, basically. I, I screwed up my terminology. The Lakers keep it if it's top five. So he's hoping that that pick becomes basically the sixth pick and becomes a real asset. My Now, my question is, the system sounds awesome, but as Rafe Bartholomew said this week in the office, it's a little bit of a pyramid scheme, right? And the only one who's the big winner in this is Sam Hinkie because you can't fire somebody when he has all of these different variables that are in his favor, all these all these things that might happen and could happen and and maybe and assets and roll over and more assets and it just seems like this a dog chasing its tail. Isn't this kind of genius by him just to keep his job for seven years? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I have sort of two thoughts on this. One is that what I actually think is going to happen with the Sixers is I think that. Uh, they will. Uh, he will improve uh, the team to a point where they're pretty good, but not a championship team because it's this whole thing still relies on the chance acquisition of sort of a transcendent player. But like, yeah, I, that seems to be the whole thing is that you're just shuffling and shuffling and 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 hoping that this you know that this sort of works out in a way that. Either because a team is trying to unload somebody, or you get the right draft pick that you get this, you know, Anthony Davis or whatever. Um, so that's what I think will probably happen. That they'll certainly improve a little bit because they can't get worse, but they won't. They won't win a title. Uh, the other thought is, well, maybe it is all chance, and maybe what what he's actually doing is just incrementally increasing the likelihood that he will get lucky. You know that's, that, he, that's, that, no, that's yeah. totally what he's doing. That is his plan right there. You just said it. So is that you know if if it's a weird sort of uh, like plank to walk out on to, to to essentially say we spend all this time and money looking at talent, thinking about basketball, but in truth, it's just random anyways. So if we can create, if we can change the the, the likelihood of this happening from one point seven percent. To 1.85%, we're in better shape than any sort of conventional attempt. It's, it's kind of like when guys, in the, like in football, talking about like the difference between first and second round draft picks, and sort of this fear that maybe first round draft picks are not what you want. You only want second round picks because the first round is such a like a high money gamble, anyways. Yeah. Um, I, it's 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 bizarre to sort of build your philosophy around this idea that we're not going to take the best players available. But I see what he's so, doing. I mean, so his strategy, as you said, is to increase the number of opportunities he has to get lucky, right? And the model for this is he worked in Houston for Daryl Morey. Daryl Morey, there, there's been a little bit of a revisionist history about the Daryl Morey thing. Um, the summer of 2012, right before the Harden trade happened, Daryl Morey's like job was in danger, right? He had he had gone in all in on this strategy that hadn't worked. He had had three, three first round picks. I think they were like twelve, sixteen, and eighteen for that draft. Um, that he thought he could package to move up, and all these different trades fell through. He tried to get Andre Drummond, couldn't get him. Tried to get free agents, couldn't get him. And he had this team of just kind of assets, and they none of them were that great, and they weren't really the team itself wasn't heading anywhere. And there was about a two-month stretch there where everybody else in the league, just about, was taking immense pleasure in the fact that Daryl's grand plan 
and oh, here he is, this guy who's revolutionizing how to be a GM that he had just kind of fallen flat on his face. It was just everybody enjoyed that. Um, the all the old school GMs, all those people. So then the Harden trade comes out of nowhere, gets Harden. That enables him to lure Dwight. All of a sudden, he has Harden and Dwight. Now he's got a contender, and and it's kind of gone. And Harden blossoms into this MVP candidate. But if you think about it, what, what I mean, the Harden trade probably shouldn't have happened. And it seemed a little bit crazy at the time that OKC was going to trade him over just paying him, you know, sixty million and stay offering him fifty-two. Or I think they offered him fifty-three and a half, but he wanted sixty. And they didn't go six and a half million extra over four years just to keep him, traded him for a whole bunch of parts. I mean, I've talked about it a million times, but Daryl was just exceptionally lucky that OKC was dumb enough to trade James Harden. And I don't know if that's a way that you, that's the way to model your entire GM strategy over, well, it worked for Daryl, because maybe it shouldn't have worked for Daryl, you know? Well, I mean, I, that's, it's, it's kind of what, if we believe in like, luck or just look at it as chance. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, he, right. he was able to he get He got Harden lucky that they wanted to trade James Harden. And he was in a position to get him that season. If the Harden thing happens the year before or the year after, I don't know if they are. Um, it's a it's kind of a weird deal. I, you well, know, he, one of the things is he used, and this was like still in the era when only a few teams were really smart enough about advanced metrics. So this is, this goes on the Daryl side and he gets the credit for this. He looked at the stuff that James Harden was good at in fairly limited minutes, right, for for OKC. He could get to the line. He could shoot threes, could beat people off the dribble. He was really good at slashing, kick, hitting guys on threes. These were things that Daryl and his staff felt like were, were the direction that the NBA was going in general, and they felt like Harden was the perfect player for, for where the NBA was going, and they thought he was a max contract they had no problem giving him five years, eighty million. You know, when you think about it, like Oklahoma City didn't even want to give him four years, sixty million. Mm-hmm. So they clearly evaluated him correctly. But we're still really, really super lucky that OKC didn't evaluate him correctly. So, and and maybe that's the NBA. Maybe this goes back to the hanky thing where you're just hoping to get lucky, and you're you're hoping to increase your chances at luck, and that somebody else will make a dumb trade. Or you'll get lucky in the lottery, and this is what Hanky's doing. I, I really remember that situation being that, and maybe this isn't true, but I thought at the time that it was going to be impossible to keep both Harden and Ibaka. And no, it was the, possible. They just had to pay the tax. I know, I know. I get it. Maybe it was. Maybe maybe they could have done that. But at the time, it seemed like they were going to lose one of those guys, and they had to pick one. And I would have picked Ibaka too at the time when I would have been wrong. I mean, you know, I, I often I feel see, this like a is, lot of- This is what people think, though, and it's not true because that first year, they wouldn't have had to pay the tax. It would have been the second year they would have had to pay the tax. And they just didn't want to pay the tax, and they were worried about a future of paying all four guys. And the part they didn't factor in was that the cap was going to go up because of the meteorites deal. And that was their biggest mistake. Not, not They were making their decisions based on this salary cap that was about to be transformed, and they didn't see it coming. So, yeah. I, mean, well, they, I mean, it's kind they, of incredible they, when you think about it. Like, they had – those guys are, are three – and people are always like, why do you always talk about the Harden trade? I think it's like the most incredible thing that happened this century in the NBA. 
Those are three of the best five or six players in the league, and they had them all on the same team. You know? Yeah, and the odds of that happening in a 30-team league now are impossible. It's, it's memorable also because it actually happened. Like, I think people have already forgotten the just omnipresent insistence that the Warriors should have traded Clay Thompson for Kevin Love. Yeah. I, I mean, that, I thought and, they should have. And, you know, I, I feel like a lot of people should be, like, openly apologizing to Clay Thompson because it's it, – it, they and, and the Warriors because they were right. I mean, it's – there's no question that the consensus was you've got to make that deal. And it, they're so much better off having not done so. Right. And they also – they were really smart about the coach that they had and the, sm- and the coach they were getting. They felt like their offense had underachieved. And they felt like Clay hadn't reached his potential as an offensive player because – the offense was basically just a lot of ISOs. And they were they were thinking if we get him moving, we get him off picks, we get him shooting off screens, things like that, his career's gonna take off. It was a great I, I wrote about it yesterday in the trade value thing. It was one of the great non trades. And there's been a lot of good non trades that have happened for a lot of different reasons and involved, you know, half of the best thirty players of all time. Mm. But, you know, that goes back to the whole luck thing. I feel like if I was a GM I would be doing what Sam Hinkie's doing. I think it's the best way to keep your job for as long as possible. Like the dumbest thing you could do is make a trade like the trade Billy King made, where you're just trading all your entire future for these older guys and just hoping that it translates into a title. Because if that doesn't work out, you're getting fired. You know? See, I guess I guess I disagree with that because you know you're talking what? about a real rarefied job. Okay. It's not like, you know, trying to keep your job as like a, you know, an architect at your architecture firm or whatever. There's limit there's very few, there's thirty, whatever, you know, GMs in the NBA. So if you get in that position to look at it as a job you're trying to hold on to, you're really only gonna hang on to it if you just have success over time or your owner decides he likes you. And I mean I, I think that the I probably would go a much more conventional road if I was a GM. But the thing is, I don't, you know, you understand now at this point all this money stuff with a fluency that I have no relationship to. I mean, I don't, I don't know what anybody in the NBA makes unless I look it up, you know. Uh, so, so that's, that, and that seems to be such a part of, like, that seems almost to be the main part of being a GM now. So I, uh, it, it no longer seems to me like the main part of that job is, is creating greatness. It's sort of like uh, doing a lot of you know mathematical gymnastics. Um, right. I was going to well, tell you though, your I, number one goal is to win, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I I think that your number one goal, if you're the general manager, is your success is defined basically by championships, but also playoff appearances. Yeah, like success is always competitive, and and that's why what what Philadelphia is doing. It's like it's. Um, I don't know. It just it, it it seems like a weird thing to do in real life. It's one thing if you're in a keeper fantasy league to to like you know just basically give up everything in order to try to succeed later. But this is a different deal. Like this is this is actually happening. You know. Um, well, imagine like in Grantland if I decided the site what couldn't win whatever hypothetical title there was, and 
I and we had like drafts and stuff like that, and I just decided to to intentionally make the site terrible for three years because there was some longer goal in play. Like this is has to be the only walk of life where this happens, other than hedge funds and when they try to strip companies and do that stuff. But it's just kind of incredible. Like they have fans that buy season tickets and. And actually, the fans are okay with it. It seems like the one thing they've done really smartly is explain how they're thinking to the fans who aren't against it. You know, they see that they kind of see the forest through the trees or they're hoping for it. But I, I, I've never seen anything like this. Well, I think in general, a, a fan will almost enjoys a young bad team if they believe that they're seeing the beginning of a good team. I think that the yeah. the, the, the problem is when you know, I feel like sometimes this happens, like at Cleveland with the Browns and stuff, where the fans sort of feel like this is hopeless, and that that no matter what, you know, that they anticipate every attempt to improve the franchise is actually going to fail. So they there's nothing to enjoy, and and they and they're and the Browns would be better off just trying to be nine and seven than than trying to try to you know to do some new way to exist. Well, this this is something that started in baseball first where you'd have these young, the smaller market teams that had a bunch of picks, and then finally the picks started to crest into something. And the Royals last year were kind of the perfect example of your best-case scenario, right? When just have all these guys they took over the years and baseball America-type guys, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're on this win streak and you're in the playoffs, and that's kind of the ideal, I would think. Golden State a little bit, too, because... When Golden State made that run two years ago in the playoffs, it was a little bit of that too, right? They had a couple, couple really smart picks. So now you see, you look around and you think like Milwaukee is a team that's kind of in that spot. Like it'd be fun to be a Milwaukee fan right now. You oh know, yeah, you're gonna make the playoffs. Yeah. You're not gonna win the title, but you have these pieces, and you just feel like, hey, this could be a really good ten year run here. I feel good about this, you know. Whereas like if you're a Brooklyn fan, you're looking at it and going, wow, exactly. Hey, what was your take on who is hip hop's alpha dog? Well, you we know, we covered this on Grantland. Yeah, who's I the guy? Who's the guy in hip hop? It. I mean, I, I this. I think this will. My answer will illustrate how detached I am from having a, a reasonable answer to this because to me, it it still seems very obvious that it's Kanye West, but. Uh, virtually no one else in the list thought this, you know, and and gave many. You know, I don't know if that was partially because people were trying to pick an you know an interesting answer and sort of support an interesting answer, but um, it just seems that everything he does matters more than virtually anyone else's actions at all. That that yeah. the fact that he's making a record matters more. The fact that the record come out matters more. The fact that he's interested in fashion as opposed to records. That that somehow has a meaning that reflects on hip hop. I, I don't know, but this is you know I'm I I, I don't really feel qualified to uh, to answer that question at this point in my life. That started that whole that piece that we wrote this week. It started in like kind of an office discussion because I had a mod Rashad on the on the BS report, and at some point he just started telling a Sinatra story, and it's great. It's it's the best part of the whole podcast. This whole Sinatra story. You think about like what Sinatra meant, just like for you're just talking about all the coolest people in the room, and he walks in the room. There, there was a certain stretch where 
he meant the most in that room of any celebrity that could have been in the room. And it was for a variety of reasons, right? He's great voice. He was kind of mythic with his personality. He was a ladies man. He was just cool. He had the whole rat pack thing. There are all these things he brought to the table that if he's in a restaurant with all the other celebrities, he probably gets the best table. So now if you translate that to just the music industry and, and, and hip hop, like basically it's between Jay Z and Kanye to get that best table, I would think. Jay Z well, still. I, I think some of the of other it. candidates would give up their table because there's such a that culture is a lot of uh, the, like the hip hop culture is a lot of idea of respecting those who came before you and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. That. I just but, uh, a little thing in so rock I, though. Who who has it in rock? Well, People I mean, well, rock has received rock has received from the culture. I mean, I suppose it's still uh, you know the. The, the biggest band in America is the Foo Fighters. Uh, the second biggest band is probably the Black Keys. Um, and after that, it gets really difficult to, to pick a, even a candidate. I mean, Radiohead is, I think, would be the probably still the consensus answer for, you know, what's, who's the most important band of this period. But they have almost no real impact now. Um, I, I wanted to say something about Frank Sinatra, though. If you want yeah. to have a great afternoon. Go on Spotify and listen to the album Frank Sinatra, A Man and His Music. Okay, this record is is Sinatra singing like this, you know, the songs of his life. But m- almost every song is preceded by Sinatra saying what was going on in his life at oh, the time that. that song was recorded, and it is insane. It's just anybody out there. It's like you'll you'll have a great time just listening to this record. And, and if you get sick of them songs, just skip to the next one and go to his introduction because uh, they're they're pretty amazing. That's funny because that's one of my favorite weird things. And it's and most musicians screw it up, but you know that was something Springsteen used to be great at. Tell this little story and it would lapse into you know the river or something. Yeah, but of but, course. That's also like that. that's also something that he was doing in a live concert. Yeah, like uh, uh, and uh, I mean, this uh, I believe this was just a like a like a, a studio thing because uh, you know, there's no crowd noise, you know. Oh, he's not talking to anybody. No, no, he's just. Oh, that's talking. amazing. Yeah, because like Springsteen, you always felt special when he did it, like. I, I, I remember seeing him in Hartford. I remember seeing him in Boston. And the Met. he would tell a story. I'd be like, oh, this is great. Bruce Springsteen's telling us a story. But there was no internet, no YouTube. You didn't realize that he was just going through all these cities telling the same five stories. Well, I, I think this was a TV special. So maybe he was in theory. But it's not like there's, there's, no, there's no response as he talks on this. Yeah. I used to like the – I thought the Storytellers franchise was great. And I don't quite know why they stopped doing it. Maybe it didn't rate well or something, but I always thought I always thought that was a really interesting glimpse for whether musicians actually put real thought into the songs that they had done or not. You know? Like I remember there was a Counting Crows one that was great. And Duritz, it was like, wow, this guy's really really thinks about the 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 songs that he's writing. But then you'd watch somebody else and you'd think, ah, oh, this person's just a jackass. They have no they have no idea why they write music. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I I never watched those too closely. I I mean, uh, I remember them being on. I know uh, it seems like something I would like, but I never. I don't know if I've ever watched all of one. You know, they should have a marathon of those. They had some good ones over the years. 
what was the thing I interrupted you before? What was the thing you had that you wanted to bring up that was different? Well, I, uh, I've been reading this book uh, yeah. called Collision Low Crossers. Have you heard this about this? Oh, the Dataka, the Jets book? Yeah, uh, yeah. Boy, it's a great book. It might be the best book about the NFL I've ever read. I'm only wow. about 100 pages in. Um, but uh, it's a... It's just uh, the, the the depth and the, the degree to which this guy is immersed in the. It's just it's 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 really a quite a, a achievement. Did you read uh, Mark Mark Bowden wrote a book about being immersed with the Eagles for a year? That was one of my favorite sports books ever. I can't remember the name. It was like called Bringing Up the Heat or something like that. But it was during the. Uh, Early, it was the Reggie White Eagles, like Jerome Brown Eagles, like that era. No, I never read the same type of book, but I, I love those books. Usually, they don't get the access. Yeah, Usually it's like this, somebody tries to well, write it, but they don't have enough well, access. And what has happened here is that this is the season after the second year the Jets go to the AFC Championship. Yeah. So because of that, it's like uh, I I think that their perception of the franchise is like we are totally all the way back, and uh, and and. It was the height of sort of Rex Ryan's fame, and the writer is sort of a, uh, a little bit like, a, at least right now, sort of obsessed with with Ryan's persona. Um, but even like his little character sketches of the entire coaching staff is, is pretty complete. I mean, it's and and the mm. guy kind of makes this point like I was only kind of a casual football fan or whatever. So a lot of it he's explaining things, but he does it in a way that doesn't seem pedantic. It's like he's explaining things in a, that, that I already knew, but in a way I really hadn't considered. I think that because, because of social media and the 24 seven sports cycle and all that stuff, it seems like those books don't have the same impact that they used to have. Like oh, I, I didn't, I, this book apparently was excerpt of the New York times magazine. I didn't even see it when that happened. I, I, I hadn't heard about this at all. I don't think it's selling, but boy, is it good. Well, like, remember when Season of the Brink came out? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. That was like a thing. That that became a cultural moment. And it was like, wow, this book and Bobby Knight, can you believe he says things like that? And, oh, it's this inside look at Bobby Knight. But if if you took Bobby Knight from the mid-'80s and put him now in the 2015 – he would be talked about and dissected and YouTube clipped and tweeted and everything just day after day after day. I don't feel like that book has an impact. Well, yeah, I mean, it's like Season on the Brink was like, it was shocking to read. That yeah. I, there just had never been that sort of, uh, where a guy had that kind of access to someone like Knight and then wrote about it. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I mean, I, I wonder, I mean, I remember reading that book in high school and finishing it and then just reading it again. Like I just started over and read like I like I read the last page and went back to the front. I don't think I've done that with any other book in my life. It was amazing. That book breaks of the game. Uh, there was a couple other from that era. Unfinished business was like that for me. Jack, Jack McCallum's book about uh, traveling with the Celtics that one year. It was during an era when people still gave that kind of access. Now nobody yeah, I, does yeah, it. I, so. I would say breaks of the game is a pretty good comparison to this Collision Little Crossers book. That's wow. the book I would. That it that that's the book that it reminds me the most of, and in the, in the it way it's sort of reported, and the kind of the way the story unspools. And, you know. Well, I hope somebody's writing a book about the Philadelphia Seventy Sixers <laughs> pyramid scheme, <laughs> Sam Hankey Sixers. Uh, all right, what are you working on next? Anything? 
Um, no, right, right now, nothing that's uh, that nothing that's about to come out. You, know? you and I have to talk after the podcast. Okay. Yeah, I have this idea for you for the NBA playoffs. Okay. Yeah, I think I think it, it like a Grantland cameo, a Grantland extended cameo for Chuck needs to happen. Like a little bit like in the WWE when The Rock comes back for like WrestleMania and like two other events. Like he leaves Fast and Furious and he just comes back. He's wrestles for three months, then he disappears again. That's what is, I'm thinking. Is, is that what happened with The Rock? I don't. Care. Yeah, that's what happens with The Rock. Every once in a while, they just bring him back for a wrestling card. So we'll have to talk. Uh, Chuck, as always, a pleasure. You bet, man. All right, I'll talk to you. Thank you for downloading the BS Report with Bill Simmons. Check out more podcasts at the iTunes Music Store or at Podcenter at ESPNRadio.com. Peace out.